Welcome to Seishura, the Music Explorers podcast. I'm Elaine. And as always, I'm Scoop Magoo. And uh, we are back after uh, a vacation that I think for you was much needed, Scott. Yes, um, I, would, I would strongly agree with that sentiment. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was nice to have a week off. Uh, though, I mean, to be fair, uh, we spent it reading uh, and preparing for uh, this episode. And uh, so... If some people might remember uh, that a few weeks ago we did an episode about uh, a book on Joy Division, uh, and we sort of this is our follow up to that, or we're, we're I guess we're calling it I, I'm calling it book club. Yeah, um, I like that. Yeah, and we're we're just we're talking about books about music. Um, frankly, I I I almost envisioned like. It would be kind of cool at the podcast, like if this was like the podcast in a way. <laughs> like as as much as I love doing everything else, like I think it's it's kind of a niche thing to talk about books about music. But anyway, um, this week we are reading uh, "The Rest Is Noise" by Alex Ross, and it's a uh, it's basically a history of twentieth century classical music. Uh, but in the introduction, it's it's it, it gets a little more sort of. Uh, into it you know uh alex ross describes it a little better than that um but i I, i'm curious scott going into this what were your expectations and like what what were you looking forward to in particular out of it um i think it, it it really i don't know if i had any any like different assumptions i know there are sometimes you go into Really, any type of media, and, and what, what you assume based on you know what what you read previously or what the intro um, promised or anything like that, you know, you kind of come out on the other side. But I, I think he he did a, a really solid job of what he set out to do, and I really love the line about um, uh, what was it? it was like you know the subtext was meant literally, you know that that, that he really is you know he attempted yeah. to tell the you know the, the history. Uh, I mean, essentially, this is, you know, it was, it's a music book, but um, yeah. it's also like a, a history book. I mean, just this yeah. was this was impeccably researched, and I think that he did a really, um, it was an interesting flow. You know, it definitely, it definitely fell into a cadence, which isn't a bad thing, but, you know, where he would, you know, introduce a specific composer idea, and then, you know, he would be building toward talking about a specific piece, and then he would, you know, break it down, you know, talking about the, the yeah. elements of it, you know, either technically or just what, you know, almost like he was doing a mini music review. Um, but I, I think I was interested to, um, you, you know, like my prior, prior background with classical music before I started listening to it myself is just, you know, candidly putting on the local, um, classical station when I needed help going I, I used to, to do that as a kid. Yeah, actually. when I needed help going to sleep. And actually, I used to work at an animal shelter, and we used to have a radio playing the classical station, like, nonstop. Um, and it actually did work to, to calm calm dogs down. So I think that for a lot of people, um, that's what they think of with classical music. They think of, um, you know, kind of serene, calm, you know, just kind of like, or like beautiful. They think of, like, something that's more like background or like, you know, music to help you sleep or whatever. And obviously this is talking about, um, you know, taking a much more artistic approach to what, what classical music has been since when people think it died. And I thought that was a great point he made in the intro is that I, I think that was in, that was in the uh, epilogue as well. Just this idea that, you know, it didn't really, die and to say that it died is is like puerile thinking exactly and i think that's that's what i was interested in in reading because you know we we've talked about and you've you've shared uh like for example uh you know xenakis yeah i was okay i was yannis xenakis yeah Yeah. and and, you know obviously you know zorn um you know like there are different 
classical composers that you've recommended to me that are, are, are really contemporary. Like, obviously, Ross goes back to the very beginning of the 20th century, but, yeah. you know, when uh, we're talking people... It's, it's probably worth mentioning that th this book pretty much starts at uh, the premiere of Richard Strauss's opera Salome, and then mm -hmm. uh, I would say it ends... It, like, the ending is a little ambiguous. Uh, the final chapter is kind of like a... Um, kind of like a summary of everything that's happened since like 1960 in in like you know classical music basically it it uh, did kind of i i felt like go it, it started to go downhill and i don't mean that negatively i just mean like it started to the pace started to quicken in terms of the years yeah. going by but i i think part of that is um there, there's just a lot going on and a lot that you know, those ideas bloom, they, they proliferate. Yeah, it's that. And I also think that, you know, the earlier, you know, people like Stravinsky and, and Strauss, and he, he mentioned Schoenberg a ton. He, he mentioned uh, Stra he mentioned Stravinsky a ton too. Sure. Because they, um, they, they were really like the two giants of yeah sort of that it, era. It, it made sense. And I was familiar with, with Stravinsky. Actually, there's a local record store where I bought a ton of really cheap classical. I bought a, a ton of Stravinsky, so... You know, I've, he's been one of my favorite composers for a little while. This was just several years ago at this point. But in any case, I think that their legacy is pretty established at this point. So there's more history to discuss. Um, whereas I think I think there's there's some hesitance or just some non-consensus. I don't know if that's a word I'm going to use it. Um, the more recent you get with any particular genre you know, what's considered a classic or what's yeah. what's kind of worth entering into the canon where obviously, you know, like once you get further away, there's more time for the discourse to, to, to play out. So you can, so maybe that's it. I'm not really sure. But I, it, I think there's that. I mean, there are also like, there are certain pieces that he mentions in this last chapter uh, that I really thought would have been cool to hear more about. I, I think mm -hmm. maybe it could have been in the previous chapter, but... He makes a very, uh, very small reference to Alvin Lucier and uh, his composition "I'm Sitting in a Room," which I think is a really cool idea. And it's like, you know, it feels like a post-Cajun sort of experiment mm -hmm. in sound. And uh, he really, I, I just kind of wish that he would, he kind of gave, um, you know, a, a little more. Uh, attention to things like that because mm -hmm. I, I think I personally I mean it, it's a bias of mine I, I find like sound art and sort of that kind of avant-garde to be really interesting mm -hmm. uh, and I, I mean here's the thing is like you know he has an idea that he's going with throughout all this that he's you know he's chronically the 20th century in terms of music you know and specifically in terms of you know more orchestral music and sort of how that has not exactly died but wavered and strengthened in some ways and weakened in another in other mm -hmm. ways throughout the last hundred years um yeah. so you know it, it it's not it's not like this is specifically a book about the avant-garde though he does give that the attention it does deserve so yeah um, exactly and I, yeah I think that point was something that was so interesting to me um throughout is, is the idea that this, you know, more so than pretty much any other genre. I mean, I think jazz might be up there. It's always hard to gauge, you know, I know we constantly try to separate where we stand as music listeners and where like the average listener stands, but pr probably more so than any other genre, uh, classical is, is kind of considered dead to more listeners at least the popular listener i mean obviously you have like the, the local like the boston pops for example where they know that people still play it but it's it's played and it exists in a very specific context whereas you yeah. know I, I think i don't think that he was overstating it when he you know he mentioned that you know people might be surprised to learn that there are still composers actually yeah. making I, music that that's what i really loved about you know alex ross's writing in this it, just in that you know he's never one to take a certain side he always wants to expand sort of the knowledge on both sides of an argument and really fill out and make let, sort of basically let the listener decide you know let the reader decide what is what they think is the truth in a way mm -hmm. um you know especially like 
I really loved how even-handed he was talking about like someone like Wagner um, near the beginning, or like even like there's a chapter about you know um, composition, you know composers uh, during Nazi Germany, and like he was you know very you know like even-handed even in that like you know talking about sort of the like same thing with uh, Stalinist Russia, just talking about like the uh intricacies of of these leaders you know mm. and while they're not you know viewed positively in history and i mean i would say rightly so but he he's also generous enough to sort of show a little glimmer of of something else that isn't just pure evil in mm. a way like he starts off one chapter and he's just like oh yeah you know like adolf hitler loved like you know dogs and music and and, <laughs> and children for some reason you know and like he always reported to have been at the premiere salome and you know things like that yeah i mean he even so, there's a little uh at least the version i have there's a little photo insert yeah yeah same thing a, there's a, one of the one of the pictures alongside you know the composer he talks about is, is hitler you know in the yeah you know the the, the warm up for a concert which um, which is just like really interesting i i found that really fascinating because like you know it's it's always so easy to paint people with a broad brush and not to say that hitler doesn't deserve a, a you know a bit of a broad <laughs> a brush <laughs> you know I, I i say this as as a jew i just uh but hot take hitler was controversial yeah fact <laughs> <laughs> um but he uh i i i just like seeing that other side of things that you know despite the atrocities of the 20th century that there was also a lot of you know passion about you know music and art uh despite all of it you know uh like reading about um uh georgie ligeti's uh whole story of like escaping you know like escaping fleeing the country numerous times yeah (laughs) you know things like that it's yeah. interesting. And on the same token, uh, I mean, obviously that this, you know, uh, this kind of diminished as the, the decades went on in terms of, of a focal point of um, the composers and just the time. But I, I appreciated how he talked about um, just inherent racism and, and bigotry mm-hmm. and you know, specifically anti-Semitism in, um, you know, the composers dealt with, you know, some of the composers, you know, the feelings they had themselves, you know, and yeah. I think that he wrote in a way where he assumed, you know, the audience was, is informed enough. They know that these were not, not ideal viewpoints, not, yeah. not ideal lens to view society, but kind of to your point, he, he presented things, including some pretty tough topics or some pretty, you know, cringeworthy quotes. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the whole, the whole uh, chapter on Benjamin Britten is, is very tense. Yeah. Uh, but, but he presents I, I was it. uncomfortable many times reading it. Yeah, but like he he doesn't he kind of presents it matter of factly. You know, anytime there's a you know kind of an eyebrow raising quote, if someone said said it today, I don't know if they would be in the public eye for long. But yeah. he just said this is this is what happened. You know, he really I felt like um, I felt like this is just one of the one of the more again I haven't read a lot of like history nonfiction, but this just felt so impeccably uh, well-researched. I, I will say yeah. something else I appreciate um, just, it, it, and I understand why people do this, but I, I, it always distracts me. I like that he put his notes and his sources at the end and didn't do the little, you know, um, footnotes. Super, yeah. The, the super scripts. Um, yeah. I, mean, so I, I think it's, is it superscript or subscript? Oh yeah. yeah I, I always get yeah, confused. J- just like know. footnoted stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause I read that there's other nonfiction authors I've, I've read where they, they put the numbers, you know, throughout. And I mean, it's, it's a really, it's nitpicky, but I like yeah, that. I, like it, it wasn't, I didn't feel like I was reading, um, like a series of essays or, or like a, um, like, like a, a, a paper or something like that. Yeah. I felt like I was reading an actual book. Um, and there's a lot of stuff. Uh, he has a lot of resources available to the reader. Uh, yeah. you know, at, at the end, um, you know, just further listening, but also there's a whole website that, you know, goes through every chapter and shows samples of the exact songs that he's talking about, the exact compositions and, you know, certain aspects of them. And th- that's something I really want to jump on really quick is that he, I-, I love how he writes 
about music. Yes. Like, you know, even though I, I will say I am not, like, well-versed in, you know, music theory, like, whatsoever, but the way he describes, you know, sort of these aspects of the music as, you know, being like a hammer, or, you know, like, he has all this description, and it's just, I, even though I can't personally, uh, you know, relate and, and kind of make that connection when I listen to the music, uh, you know, I... I like seeing someone having that idea, like, you know, being able to express music in those terms. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like he, he really knows what he's talking about. And I think oh, that yeah. that is just super cool. Yeah. And I, I, I don't mean this. Actually, I mean, to the contrary, I mean, this is a compliment. You know, yeah. even if I didn't know that he, he wrote for The New Yorker, uh, which I think he still he still does. Right. Um, I think so. Yeah. But even if I didn't know that, like, this is very much a. Um, he's very much a New Yorker writer, which I think I used to subscribe. Um, and I, I think it's a really, it, it fits its, um, its reputation. Unfortunately, it's really expensive to subscribe. I, I forget what the, the, so I stopped, but, um, it's just, it's very, their writers are really, really good. You know, they, they do a great job. And something I noted, you know, early on is that, um, he infused humor at the right points. He infused just really beautiful poetic writing at the right points. He got tech, you know, like he just knew exactly where to shift the mood. And generally, he just it was a really great, engaging writer. Um, yeah. And um, to, to to your point though about you know not not being uh, or not being as well versed in music theory, I, I guess I forget what your exact words were, but yeah, I, mean, I know even less. Time. So. Yeah. I, I think to me the one thing is if, if I don't know if it's a criticism just kind of just a, a note that he, he said that this book in, in a way could be geared toward people who weren't that familiar with classical music wanted to learn more um, I, I think that this book I don't want to say it's inaccessible but it does take a bit more work to fully appreciate it or I think that it would be better appreciated if you knew more about like for example uh I, I can't read music and I just off the, especially when you know, throughout, he'll talk about, um, you know, like, you know, and like you said, he does offer a glossary, but still like, you know, he says it's an in E sharp or in stuff like that. I don't, I don't, you know, inherently know or like just off. The yeah. Back, but I mean, like, like unless you have like perfect pitch, you really wouldn't know what an E sharp is anyway. Sure. Um, I like, I, I feel like the terms that are important you know he makes sure to make them known like for instance for instance um a oh i can't remember it now um god i can't fuck uh i always talk about this too it, it's like a a certain uh it's like a certain chord that is basically like uh it, it's it uses a few different like uh notes but like uh it, it's a very dissonant chord um, and I can't remember what it's called, and I'm gonna look it up now because it's gonna kill me if I don't. And I know Cecil Taylor uses it, so I'm gonna just gonna look up. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Tone clusters. There we go. Yeah, uh, and I think when he does, um, like for example, like like glissando, like I know, like I can picture that, like I know what that yeah. term means. But I think whenever he would he would talk about how. Um, you know, like it's it, it goes from you know E to, to like he would talk about different notes like that. Just that was hard yeah. for me to, to grasp onto. It, Although at at one point I forget the the specific piece escapes me, but he talked about how um, like I, I think the way that the progression goes, where it's just kind of um, like by or like cutting cutting the. Uh, like the string or like cutting the, the note in half in a way like that was a helpful visual. oh the, the, that's the harmonic series yes yeah like, like that, that, that uh, sounds right but like you know whatever um like however he described that like i, I got that it was just it was yeah, some it, of the more technical parts where it, it was it was a little bit difficult for me it, i um, mean it, it, it it's 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 like a um it's a can of worms to get into i i've tried numerous times to try to like understand music theory and i haven't been able to get past like intervals even you know even though i'm like yeah. kind of aware of them but like stuff like the like the uh the circle of fifths just doesn't make any sense even though 
I can I understand what people are talking about. Like, like for instance, I I'm trying to remember which exact piece he talks about, but um, there's one that goes through nearly every key in the Circle of Fifths, um, which is actually exactly what John Coltrane does in Giant Steps. Uh, but anyways, yeah, it, it, I I feel like what needs to be explained gets explained, and I think when it comes to like something like an interval, like when he says like oh like they go up like a tritone. Or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like he he does explain that a little bit. Um, I mean, a, a tritone is is, you know, I, I I feel like it isn't it common knowledge, or is that just me? Uh, it, I'm aware of it just because of how much I've you know I've listened to metal and the fact okay. that that was yeah you know, um, in that. Uh, I think is a headbanger's journey like that. that that's yeah. It, it is like, it is headbanger's journey yeah, that, that has like the. The they devil's like focus note. on that a lot, yeah. and they talk about was it Strauss? It might have been Wagner. They they talk about a composer that used it a lot. Well, I mean, in in this book, you know, um, Strauss famously uses it as the the opening of Salome. He uses that chord rich, which, by the way, did you ever use any of the online resources for this? I I found uh, I made sure to cross reference the. The songs but i found the the playlist he offered someone made yeah. like a perfect version i don't think he did on apple music um but i did i did look through and read some of the the like when he did the excerpts and whatnot which i yeah. thought was really laid out well yeah because they like you know for instance that that opening to salome like you know he he specifically has that there to sort of show you what like a tritone is like or like you know what like a dissonant chord kind of sounds like or mm-hmm. you know what have you um yeah you know I, i'm just thinking out of so were there any were there any chapters were there any composers that really sort of um you know spoke to you more than others um not necessarily from your experience with them uh but more from just reading them um and i mean even chapters if you just want to talk about chapters even um i'm just trying to like because they there were definitely certain parts of the book that I was really much more engaged in than others. There, there was one specific idea, and I, I, the name of the specific composer escapes me. But just the idea that I don't know why this never occurred to me, um, how recorded music or like the gramophone. You know, we always think of, of you know physical media, and, and you know we talk about streaming as democratization for listeners. Uh, mm. It was interesting when we talked about how it was a resource and kind of democratized, or that's not the right word, but it was a resource for composers too. There was yeah. one specific composer we talked about. It might have been Mahler. I, I um, think you're talking about Bartok, where yes. he, uh, he he would go all would, around yeah. Europe and record folk music. That that you know that, that's a good example as well. There was one composer we talked about where he would just like re-listen to um, his own work, or at least he would listen to oh, right his his um contemporaries and like that was just that was something that stuck with me and and kind of you know if, if there was like my you know i ranked you know my main takeaways or like my favorite takeaways just thinking about how uh you know on the one hand older composers before that was an option you know how impressive it was and obviously you know like beethoven beethoven being deaf and being able to do what he was was able to do was pretty impressive but just like not being able to check your work in a way like yeah obviously you can you can hear it um and usually like you know you compose with like an instrument nearby so like you know you, you have a piano to like sort of test those lines out but yeah i i get what you mean that like yeah, just like hearing the full performance because obviously when, yeah. when you had the when you're hearing the premiere you know there, there's you know they talked about how it was an event obviously you know every mm. time it was you know played and then you have the press and the reaction of the people especially with some of these composers playing very um uh very striking and very you know unusual for the time pieces obviously there was a strong reaction but i think mm. that and, and i really wish the specific name well you know still was i could recall it right now but i think just yeah. that idea of how that must have changed like so much like how you write something because that's just that's so that's so inherent to writing music nowadays is that like you go through a whole recording process and you listen back and you can to to 
for that to be such a new novel concept, I, I thought that was that was fascinating to me because again, we always talk about you know physical media and then streaming media being something you know as a benefit for listeners, but I guess I never um, I never thought of it as something that is an asset for composers. Um, yeah, I, I mean the, the, that's kind of the cool thing about uh, you know composition programs now, like um, Sibelius, which is one of the more popular uh composition programs you can get for a computer uh you know it, it has like playback features on it mm-hmm. things like that you know it's it's definitely um revolutionized the game in a way uh it's it, it is an interesting thing to think about actually but you bringing this up sort of what was going through my mind was how just how elitist music was and i, mean, yeah, I guess oh, still yes. is but yeah. but you know just the fact that you needed to be able to go to a music hall to hear this and you know that means that you either had to be lucky or you had to have money you know exactly you know, no that was that was another um yeah i think one of my second takeaways is, is how um i wonder how many and i don't i don't mean for this to sound you know flippant or, or snarky or whatever but it seemed like the the composers that made it were either they, they were you know pretty affluent they had the the connections and, and means to you know enter into that sphere or they were able to grind their way out um, especially there were uh, there was a specific school that I think as part of their mission they accepted African American um, yeah yeah they accepted them like for free so it was kind of if if you were able to if you were kind of you you fit that. Um, class where they wanted to, you know, bring people up who didn't, you know, weren't necessarily well off to, to begin with in life. But it's amazing how the gatekeeping was so prominent and mm-hmm. how how many composers, how many people, you know, did that keep out? I mean, obviously, yeah. there, there, no shortage of, of brilliant composers did rise to the top you know it's not um it was definitely an elitist group but it certainly um just the way that the composers were kind of competing with themselves trying to to push themselves further and and compete with other composers it created some amazing music but i just always wonder um it's so different from nowadays where nowadays you know pretty much anyone has the resources to make music you can kind of go from there but to even break into this genre, you know, in, in the early 20th century up until relatively recently, um, is incredibly, is a huge barrier. Yeah. No, it's, it is really interesting. It, I, I also, this is tangentially related, but, uh, one of the biggest thoughts that kept racing through my mind as I was reading this again, which I, I, I probably should have mentioned that I've, I've read this before, uh, but it's been, a few years now um but i I just couldn't help but think about how pretentious and stuck up their own asses a lot of these composers were oh absolutely like stuffy as hell like it was and and like it wasn't annoying as much as it was just funny like it's it, it was like the equivalent of watching you know like a reality show where like you, you know, kind of like everybody's a little trashy on it, and that's kind of the point. Like it, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of like it, it was like the reverse of that, but it still had the same effect. That it was yeah. just like it was just funny to like experience, just like to see how much of an asshole Schoenberg was, yeah. or like you know, uh, I I mean, even like Mahler and Strauss, like they're like quote unquote rivalry and like that type of thing it was just like so stupid. And like, or um, yeah, I I don't know if you caught this that like uh, Philip Glass and Steve Reich had like a falling out too. Mm-hmm. And but it was it was over because I Philip Glass changed one of his composition names to not include Steve Reich's name. <laughs> it was just like it, it just it's all of like the most petty shit, and it's just like it. Part of the reason it's so funny is because, like, they're doing all this, and it's just like, oh, yeah, the First World War is, like, ten years away. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, Jesus Christ, like, are, are there not more important more things to yeah, squabble exactly. about? <laughs> but well, I, I think a big part of that, and 
it's so interesting how in order for these composers um, pieces to, to work it requires you know in some cases an extraordinarily extraordinarily large group of, of musicians yeah. um, I, I, but, I don't know if you if you happen to notice um, one of his descriptions of Stockhausen's last piece required um, four helicopters with violinists <laughs> yeah oh man um <laughs> but, but I, I just yeah yeah but th- that's to say you know we, we always you know in in rock history or music history in general you know you hear about you know like the the diva singer or, or whatever what have you yeah um, i mean th- that's kind of baked into classical music because you have you know <laughs> i think it's just you... baked into art honestly sure yeah but like especially for classical music and like you mentioned it, it's the combination of of that kind of the, the world that they were performing, you know, the audience they were performing from, and just kind of the, 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 the upper class, you know, ideas. I mean, even still, like if, um, like if I like if, if I was you know working at the office early and someone came in and I was playing metal, like I think people would be like, oh, whatever, that that's pretty average for a twenty-something-year-old dude to listen to. But if someone came in and I was listening to classical music, they're like, ooh, that's that's fancy. Like people just inherently hear it and think it's like upper class music. So yeah. you you kind of combine that mindset with the fact that like it, it's it's them. Like the, their music is them. Like you think of like listening to, you know, you know Schoenberg or you know yeah. Glass or what, like they just their name is what carries on. You know is is what carries the weight. Oh of yeah, their music. So I think that that just is is a breeding ground for ego. And, and you know, it's it, it is interesting that when you read some of the quotes, you're like, this is kind of what what you imagine a parody of what rich or like what rich successful people were talking. Yeah, like but it, it's like this. Exactly, that's what they said. <laughs> that's what they. That's you know that's yeah, what they were like. It's it's just like yeah, some of the stupid stuff they would get you know into squabbles with or like you know kind of that idea that like you know schoenberg's has like these like disciples way back in the day but then they all end up like fucking leaving them <laughs> yeah uh, yeah it it was it was really cool to see just I, I think also just the the full breadth of what you know kind of happened in the 20th century in terms of music because you know like i i i think there's a lot of bias you know i i think when when we think of classical music, when we think of orchestral music, we, we think of like Mahler, we think of, you know, uh Debussy and, you know, uh Beethoven, Wagner, like, you know, the, there are all these certain names that come to mind. Uh, you know, in sort of that romanticism of it, you know, like that that romantic era, um, that, you know, composers still pull from. Uh, you know, but there's also you know Schoenberg's whole thing you know this whole uh serialism theory and sort of how people like Boulez you know sort of took that and just ran with it as far as they could uh you know it it, it was just cool to see that variance of ideas instead of just saying oh you know it it, it, it was just Strauss it was just Mahler it was Debussy you know it was Shostakovich you know it, it was like these like romantic-ish sort of composers as opposed to like you know, like he, he he gives Cage time, he gives Boulez time, he gives you know Webern, uh, you know, all these all these like avant-garde weirdos just like a little <laughs> bit of time. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought up um, avant-garde again because I think you mentioned that earlier. I didn't want to, I wanted to make sure we touched on this, but it's so interesting. Um, you know, I, th- I think that this more so hit me as I was listening to, you know, kind of the selection that he, he brought about. But um, it's it's crazy how these were pieces that, you know, people, you know, again, we talked about the audience that went to see it. But, like, they they went to see it and, and this was, you know, you know mainstream to, to the extent that it was back then. Um, but nowadays this would be so, like, we're talking about distance, we're talking about, uh, you know, just kind of non-conventional in a way, you know, sounds that people would not, you know, yeah. kind of not be privy to. But then you watch any number of, of big budget movies or you watch horror movies. Like there are so many parts of society where this kind of music pops up and it's totally normal. But it, it, it's interesting how it, it's just, it's totally, it has had such a shift in 
its standing and such a shift in its cultural, you know, public acceptance. And I just, I find that so fascinating that, um, granted, like, I don't, I don't listen to, I haven't put classical in like the top three to five genres that I, I listen to. Um, but still like it just, to me, it's another style of music and the fact that it's so, um, even the more melodic, like traditional, you know, going, you know, much, much further back from the 20th century, even like traditional classical music, it's just not a thing people listen to the same, um, Mm. you know, the same frequency anymore, you know, and it used to be just kind of like the, but that's that's probably just a, a product of the time. Like that just was what music sounded like back then. Like it wasn't, wasn't. There weren't a ton of options, you know, then we saw in the 20th century that started to change. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Just, just, I don't want to call it a fall from grace, but just, a, just a fall from prominence that classical music has, I think is fascinating. And, and then what was, you know, considered groundbreaking and kind of intriguing classical music is now like unlistenable to people, like anything that just has that distance or has that avant-garde edge. Um, I mean, it's, just, it's kind of always it's, been like that. Sure. You know, like, you know, that that whole story, which I, has been, you know, just uh, historicized to death, you know, that, that like the premiere of uh, the Rite of Spring, you know, yes. sort of like the riot that took place in that or like, you know, people, you know, yelling during Schoenberg's premieres and things like that. Uh, it is really interesting to see sort of, you know, I, how it's never been uh, fully embraced. But it also kind of shows that you know how visceral of a reaction art still gets, no yeah. matter how you know uh, postmodern we get. <laughs> no, exactly, and I, I think um, even if we take it in, in the, the you know kind of a comparable setting, like when people people say I'm going to go to the the symphony, they're thinking of you know like the Boston Pops, like even around Christmas time, they're going to play like really bright, happy, you know grandiose symphonic music that's really easy on the ears like you know i think most people and obviously you can there are um like you know i, I love uh Lear Bertucci. um she's a, a reed player a, a great modern classical artist you know she does um you know she does she does showcases for example uh, i love leia they're a really interesting avant-garde like almost operatic um, duo they, they they still tour and whatnot but like it's not they're not playing concert halls you know like yeah. just, it just it's gone from um you know even, even though right of string was, was controversial it was still it, it the stage it had is far more than the vast majority of avant-garde composers nowadays and i just that that really fascinates me that it, it's it's gone from like the premier style of music and, and one of the most one of the premier styles of entertainment and just in a hundred years which really isn't that long in the grand scheme of things it's 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 now in a very specific place this was a very specific part of society yeah. i kind of related to this but um i kept thinking throughout this is like sort of what exactly an opera is because like you, yes. you you have that standard definition but i think i'm talking about like sort of that platonic ideal of it almost yeah. in our minds it is like that you know we, we always think of of the you know the big fat lady with like a viking helmet you yeah, know exactly. we, 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 we think of wagner you know and or like you know maybe barbara seville but like mostly it, it's it's wagner it's like the magic flute you know and so it's just funny it, i find it really funny to see like um all these you know, operas taking place that are about modern things. Like, I mean, I mean, I don't know if Einstein on the beach is considered an opera or not, but like, just sort of that whole shade of it, or like um, Peter Grimes, or uh, you know, like uh, even like Lulu, or you know, some of these operas that he was talking about. Um, you know, sort of in after the first few chapters, are just like it's it's so cool to see like sort of the term opera be you know, sort of reconfigured or just like modernized because i've just never seen it like that you know I, i've i've you dabbled briefly into like penderecki's um opera paradise lost mm-hmm. but like even then it's just like it, like you don't you don't really think about it like and i think in in the second to last chapter in uh he, he talks briefly about um 
a I, th- I think it was a John Adams opera that was all about Nixon. Yes, um, <laughs> which yes. is just like. Again, like it's just, just it's such an interesting combination of, of yeah, words. It, it's it's just it, it's interesting how like we've you know I think composers were like pulling from like you know like folk tales back in the day, and now now we're just like oh yeah, we're gonna take from history. <laughs> it, it's yeah because but I think at the time like their material, I wonder for them if they would have kind of viewed it in a in a similar way, like their material. People are like oh like that's. Um, that that's so maybe not too recent, but maybe they would have reacted in a similar way. I'm I'm not sure. I, I, I mean, mean it's, it's, they, it's, they're always like like people will always put in you know certain things to add like a certain slant, you know, and sort of have some sort of um, you know conversation about current politics or what have you, like within even if they're pulling from you know like a folktale. Uh, it, it's just interesting to see how like how these definitions kind of change uh i still don't really understand the difference between an opera and a musical uh even though i looked up uh for a while yesterday you know trying to figure out the difference between the two but there really isn't much anymore yeah because is there i mean is there dialogue like i always thought it was the opera doesn't have any dialogue i don't even know well the, the best the best difference i could find between the two is that um opera in in opera the music is the story whereas with uh musicals it's the other way around that it's more like the story is accompanied by music mm. uh, which i i mean it it's a very slight difference um and it, it almost feels like splitting hairs in a way but at the same time like i don't know like you know I, you think of like west side story but then you also think of like the ring and you're just like, oh, like, <laughs> like the, the, there's there's a difference there, like one is like maybe two hours long, the other is like four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also you know when you talk about again, that was just my my whole my mental definition is the, yeah. the fact that uh, you know, opera is just all like you said, like the 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 fat lady just it's carries, the, or yeah. like the fat lady, the the robust man, just like they just carry the all the dialogue with their their voices, but I think you would consider Les Mis a musical. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm pretty sure I haven't seen it, but I, I think I don't think there's very much talking at all. The, there mind. isn't, but I, I I guess that isn't considered a like um sort of what 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 you know makes the two different because yeah. the, there are you know obviously that like I mean I, I actually in the article I was reading they they referenced Les Misérables. You know, uh, just in that, like, you know, it's still musical, but people like that. There's nobody not singing in it. <laughs> uh, Which it was also because because the person reported that to me was uh, a friend of mine who, if you met him, you'd you'd be mortified that he even attended a musical. But he went with huh. his girlfriend, and he was just like they didn't they didn't fucking talk the entire. It was all sing. He was just like so like mortified that like <laughs> there was no speaking lines. It was just all singing nonstop. <laughs> oh man, I this is a weird thing. I I mentioned this only because I was kind of watching parts of it the other day. But um, trapped in the closet, the R. Kelly thing is considered an opera. Like I, or at least it's called an opera. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if I. It, it, was that like a mute? Like, what is that? I trapped in the closet. Yeah, uh, I know that it's really difficult to describe. Have you have you listened to any of it? No, I haven't. I haven't really listened to much of R. Kelly at all. I you know so, I I will say like I really enjoyed watching it, but at the same time like and, and I'm not one to like feel a little weird when listening to like a controversial artist or an artist who have who has done pretty shitty things but like i I was pretty uncomfortable when when watching this because i kept thinking about like all the shit r kelly's pulled um but it's 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 like a drama that he's singing and it's like a narrative uh all about like you know literally like this encounter that he has with this girl that kind of spirals out of control and becomes like this whole like web of deception kind of 
Uh, it, wow. People have made a bunch of parodies of it. Like uh, Weird Al has trapped in the drive-through. If you remember that. Uh, right. But I, <laughs> I feel like I, I have I, to look for, this up now because this does sound vaguely familiar. It's um, it's it. I thought it was really good. It was really interesting to watch, and you know he has a good voice. But uh, I I think the reason I actually watched it was because um, American Dad does a parody of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, and, that like, like, and, like... and Steve plays R. Kelly in it. Basically, <laughs> it's 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 fucking fantastic. I oh, love it. Man. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I, who, who knew we'd be talking about a Schoenberg and Stravinsky, and then R. Kelly would just pop up. Yeah, honestly, like, I, <laughs> and I, I pulled kinda, out my gun. <laughs> I kind of love that uh, that we just talked about R. Kelly for well, I'm we, at all, but like for as long I, as we did. I, I really like. I I can't express enough how much I enjoyed watching Trapped in the Closet. Like I didn't watch all of it, but I really want to watch it, like the rest of it now. Maybe we have to convince Lauren to to watch that with me. I mean, it's it, it's yeah, it, it, it's 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 not like it's 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 not like trap dirty, if you will. Like it's it's not like it's oh all partying and fucking all the time. Like it's more like these like dramatic moments that like <laughs> are just connected to each other, and R. Kelly's just singing the entire thing. Um, it's. Like uh, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, yeah, I, I I think this is a sign that um we are kind of running out of things to talk about with the book. Uh, can I just uh, offer a couple quotes before we move on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, because there was something that really I really liked. Um, specifically, so on page three thirty five of my edition, it says, "Um, music may not be invo- uh, inviolable." but it is infinitely viewable, acquiring a new identity in the mind of every new re- listener. It is always in the world, neither guilty nor innocent, subject to the ever-changing human landscape in which it moves. Which I, I just really like that. that. That was just a really cool way of sort of talking about, you know, um, music that was, you know, maybe uh, you know, controversial or made by controversial people or what have you. It was just a really, like... I, I just really like that quote. Um, there was this Morton Feldman quote that I got to. There's, uh, unfortunately for most people who pursue art, ideas become their opium. There's no security to be oneself. And that that was I really like that as well, uh, just because of my own sort of weird foibles and thoughts on art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just kind of cool to see someone else, you know, kind of push for that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, um, this is about Cage, but I, in place of the term avant-garde, which implied a quasi-military forward drive, Cage preferred experimental, which he said was inclusive rather than exclusive. Which, I, it, again, you know, just, it, it's a cool idea. I, I don't know if I necessarily consider that the difference between avant-garde and experimental, but it, I, I like the way Cage views it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just puts such a different slant on things than it would normally just considering how you know even now how elitist classical music feels you know it's cool to see someone who's you know considered one of the most important composers of all time go and say this yeah uh, no. so I mean basically f- final thoughts yeah well um, I was just going to say this? I really I like oh, that yeah. um I like that uh, that definition he put forward. I mean, I will say that we've talked about experimental avant-garde. Um, I don't. I mean, at best, maybe it's a note when you hear it difference, but essentially, to me, they're they're pretty they're pretty one of the same. Um, like my personal definition, the difference between like progressive and experimental is I always thought I always view progressive music as taking a specific genre and pushing it outward or trying to like expand it outward, and experimental you know, taking the genre is kind of, you know, pulling it in the kind of, like you said, inclusive, pulling disparate, you know, kind of, you know, ideas you wouldn't you know, think of as, as appropriate inward to the genre. That's just, I mean, that's my own mental. Um, do, you, do you know, um, do you know Heinbach by any chance? Um, I don't think so. He, he's a, he's a YouTuber, uh, but he, he's a, he's a composer, experimental musician, composer. 
but he has a really interesting YouTube channel. But I, I was just watching one of his videos, and he was saying that, like, for him, you know, experimental, what, what, what the difference between experimental avant-garde is, you know, is just like for him at least, it's that you know, experimental music is you're you're actually testing something new, you know, you you you, it's not exactly a success. Mm-hmm. It's you're 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 throwing stuff against the wall in that and seeing what sticks, you know. And so for him, he like he's always you know like those experimental composers are always trying something new, and sort of seeing how it works, uh, which I just thought was a really cool way of yeah. viewing it. That's interesting. Uh, and he, I, 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 I highly recommend watching his channel. He has some really interesting stuff that he's like into and just, you know, talking about like music equipment and like tape and things like that. Like he actually has a whole video where he records um, a few tape loops and then disintegrates them, you know, kind of like uh, Basinski. Uh, but instead of, uh, but he actually like physically degrades them. It's really interesting to watch. Yeah. 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 But so, but anyway, takeaways from the rest is noise. Yeah, actually, I, I wrote down a couple of quotes too. I mean, they're they're a little briefer, and I think I might just kind of add some. We have time, after, dude. After I, I read them, but uh, um, you know, one was, uh, and I, I didn't write down. I should. I knew I should have done that. I didn't write down who said <laughs> that. That's my bad. That that's that, that's that's the professional touch we put on this podcast. But yep, uh, the first <laughs> the first is, you know. Art for nothing, for nothing else but itself. And the absence of tradition means freedom from tradition. And I think what was interesting about these quotes is, at least the first one I know was meant in kind of the the negative. That, like, you know, art art shouldn't be, you know, art for nothing else but itself. Um, and I think I think that was said by a composer. I'm pretty sure that Ross said the, the second one, the absence from tradition, mean, you know, means freedom from tradition. And I feel like that's the underlying theme of classical music and I guess music in general, um, but specifically classical music in this century, um, you know, the 20th century that is, because when you think of, you know, the, the decades and centuries preceding it, it was very much, you know, music of royalty or, you know, music, you know, classical music commissioned by the church. Like it was, it was always informed or commissioned or in some way tied to a larger institution. And I think over the, over the years and specifically once we get to the 20th century, I mean that starts to erode and eventually just completely dissipate. Or that's that's not um, a factor. Yeah, yes and no because the, there are still compositions that are being you know commissioned even today. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it. But yeah, I, I get your point. It's, it's definitely more democratized, and you know it's 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 less reliant on you know those in power than it once was. Exactly, and I think, or, or maybe it's done for. You know, educational pursuits. Like I remember when I worked at a, a music production company at the Seacoast here in New Hampshire, uh, we had you know some plenty of artists who were college professors who like this is this was kind of their way of, of publishing. You know, they, yep. you know some people publish, publish a, a paper, they would they would publish an album, so to speak. Um, but I, I think to your point, you're totally totally right. I think it's it's the optionality there that like in yeah. in the past, and you know we're talking like way way in the past. Um, it was that's just how music was created. You know, the church would commission it, or like like royalty would commission it. Now, I mean, certainly that that still exists. You know, probably not to that extent. You know, it's it's commissioned by you know you get a grant or something like that. But the fact that just the the very specific way that music was produced, the very specific both from like how it physically came to be and kind of the. Uh, um, just the stylistic rules, quote unquote, that there were have just faded and, and morphed and kind of, you know, it's like you said, democratized for the artist um, over time. And I think that that's kind of the, the consistent theme throughout, you know, very different. Because, um, yeah, like as we listen to these these composers, um, it wasn't all just it didn't go from like melodic to like dissonant and completely avant garde. Like there was definitely color. Um, there yeah. was definitely, you know, like not every composer even like contemporaries, like some people took a much more intense approach or avant-garde approach. Other composers, you know, kind of took a slightly more traditional approach, but they still were doing it in a different way. Um, I think just... Yeah, the, it, it, it's a lot of gray. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing. It went from like very black and white, like this is how music is composed. This is how art is, is supposed to be. The fact that it went from that to, um, you know, art is more gray than it's ever been. 
you know, like now, yeah. but then I think that was kind of a testament to how things developed in the 20th century. Um, and I also kind of want to point this out because I, I totally forgot about this until now that, um, I don't know if you remember this in the book, but, uh, he briefly mentions that, uh, I think it was Steve Reich and Philip Glass had a moving company together. <laughs> Like like yes. like a legitimate moving company because they couldn't make the bills, uh, you know, being composers, and so like they had to do something, you know, to, just 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 to pay their rent. Oh man, that's it, it, which is funny. like I, I, on one hand kind of like really sad to know, but also kind of cool that just like people who are like that, like like I mean, both Reich and you know uh, Glass are just like mainstays in like modern like you know experimental music yeah uh, and it's just cool to see that like you know e- even they had to you know they, they had a schlep <laughs> yeah no that's what i was going to say is just the fact that you know you know i mentioned how modern classical is not does not have the stature it once was but i think people would recognize those names you know probably more so than others and the fact that mm-hmm. that's where they came from that's pretty that's pretty fun. Yeah, it's it's funny, funny in a reverse way because obviously you hope you hope that um, no artist has to struggle that much, but obviously we know that that's not that's not the way. It works. I mean, I, I think part of it was uh, a choice on their part because I think it, it could have been easy to sort of go in like you know maybe make it as like a film composer, you know, or or like making like commercial music or you yeah. know something like that. But but they had a vision and they stuck to it. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like um, uh, T. S. Eliot like worked as a worked as a banker for a lot a uh-huh. lot of time while while he was writing the Wasteland. So, and, and who's just, the who's the composer in this? Who um, I think he was primarily like a life insurance salesman, and he composed uh, on the side. And was that wasn't that John Adams? No, I think it was earlier. It was much earlier in the book. I forget who it was, but like he just like pretty high key was the hokiest life insurance salesman like he he had he had he wrote like a best practices book which had like some of the just like really um like you think of of like 50s the training obviously this is before the 50s but like early 1900s training manuals like like position yourself you know in the door and convince them this is what they need or something i'm paraphrasing yeah i i I don't remember uh, but yeah, it, it it is just really funny to see that that side of things. Yeah, just um, um, yeah. And now I'm picturing. I, you said it was Reich and Reich and, and Glass. Yeah, Reich and Glass. Uh, just picturing like them showing up. Like, aren't you like Steve Reich and Philip Glass? Like, yeah. What do you need us to move? <laughs> like, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think this this sounds like it was too early. You know, or it was yeah know, too. But like, it'd be funny uh, if it was like when they were. Well known enough that people would be like, "What the hell are you doing?" <laughs> what, what the fuck do you think I'm doing here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's really funny. Oh man. So yeah, overall, I, I really enjoyed reading this again. Uh, it it gave me a ton of you know stuff that I've listened to now. Uh, you know, specifically like uh, more towards the avant garde sections. Um, you know, especially in like that last chapter, Sunken Cathedrals, where he talks about all these composers from all over the world. I was really interested in a lot of those. So I have a lot of stuff I need to listen to now. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really yeah. appreciate this, um, this segment a lot. I think it's, it's a, it's a really cool idea on your part. I'm glad that we're, thank I'm you. Glad that we're sticking with it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, every, that you enjoy it. And I mean, I enjoy it too, because I love reading and I love music and I love talking to my boy. So pretty, uh, pretty, pretty good trifecta. I'd say. Yeah. Um, so you want to talk about albums of the week? Yes. And I want you to go first because yes. I need to, ah. I need to make sure I get the name right of the album I okay. want to talk about. So that's fine with me. Uh, so basically, uh, like a little preamble, like always, uh, Squidco, uh, the online avant-garde music retailer Squidco, uh, had a sale for like uh, people who had recently bought stuff, it was kind of like a hidden type of thing, and I I just bought like a bunch of stuff I'd never heard of half of it. Uh, there's some really cool stuff I found, but I had this thing on last night. I it's actually I, I think I talked about it before. It's an album by Henry Kaiser, and it's actually free. 
if you buy anything on Squidco, like they just give it to you for free. Oh, okay. uh, it, and it's like a whole CD. Like it's not even like like you know like the MP3s. Mm-hmm. It's like a le- like a legit CD. Um, and it's so it's called uh, "Problems Are Just Opportunities in Work Clothes," uh, and it's literally fifty minutes of him playing like one single solo improvisation piece uh, with you know uh with a baritone guitar and it's 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 just beautiful like you know a good portion of it is just very melodic and uh really just feels open almost like a little wistful in a way and then you know every so often he'll add like these little like um sort of you know uh i guess non-traditional unorthodox touches you know he'll you know maybe he'll go a little dissonant or He'll start using some extended techniques, you know, scratch the strings or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of variance in that 50 minutes, and it, it's, it was just really a beautiful piece uh, to the point that, like, it, it might be somewhere in, like, in uh, albums of the year for me. So, um, and it was free, which, which is just all the more amazing. Uh, yeah, so Henry Kaiser, uh, problems are just opportunities and work clothes. Sweet. That sounds really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Also, uh, support Squidco. Uh, they're 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 a great little company. So nice. Yeah. Sweet. What about well, you? I made a trip to Newbury Comics. You know, I had some some downtime last week, and I just I went I went in as I usually do, just to kind of sift through, um, find some random stuff, and. This immediately caught my eye. It, I, I, sometimes you just see a cover and you're like, I think that's going to be really interesting. I need to get that. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I Googled it, I was just like, because I couldn't really make out the typeface, but it, it was, it looks like, like an ancient, well not ancient, but like, it's like medieval artwork, but it's very, um, it's like kind of a punk-ish version. I mean, the way it's laid out. I mean, I mean, it looked like if everything else about it looked like a punk record, but it looked like a medieval artwork with like a a damsel in distress, which is what the album's called, and a you know knight fighting a dragon and whatnot. And it's you know damsels in distress by anti scrunty faction. Anti scrot faction. Anti scrunt. So S C R U N T I. Okay. And they are. From what digging into them, they are like an underrated um, Riot Girl band. They were they were like they oh this is a cool looking album cover yeah. yeah. So they were active the very briefly from eighty four to eighty five. And when you think Riot Girl, uh, a lot of people said that they were you know they preceded Bikini Kill, who are credited with launching Riot yeah, Girl, and yeah. they really did. Bikini Kill was was didn't start like they didn't you know. What's the word? Like, they didn't join or like start being a band until five years after you know Anti Scrutiny Faction broke up. And if you listen to um, this band, they they really did like the you know the fiery you know feminist lyrics, and I think I think they were a, a an all woman trio, um, really like fast paced hardcore punk with you know like high pitched vocals and. It's it's crazy that like I've literally never heard of this band in my life. Like I'm familiar with Riot Girl, you know, I like Sleater Kinney. Um, you know, I've listened to a ton of Bikini Kill, but I appreciate, you know, their music. Um, it's always interesting to find someone that like was an early originator of a style that just got lost by the wayside. And I don't I don't really know I don't really know why. Um, I think it might be because these guys were in Boulder, Colorado. Um, <laughs> whereas and not, I'm not trying to shit on Boulder, but Bikini Kill were in you know Washington in the 90s which obviously that was a you know a hot yeah. spot for you know underground rock in that way so that's probably why Bikini Kill took off and anti-scrutiny faction did and like, I'm not saying this is it's like groundbreaking hardcore punk but it's just like really short punchy spunky you know punk rock um, yeah and I think just the, I mean, like the, the novelty of discovering such a you know unique band that I, I, I feel like I'm surprised that they're not in the conversation more and you know I, I didn't see their name at all when i first was kind of digging into riot girl um but yeah, yeah I, just a cool record 
I, I feel like part of the reason they probably aren't remembered is because, I mean, I, I don't know if it's just me, but, like, Riot Girl seems like a like a small movement in a way. Yeah, yep. Um, like, I, but I, which sounds demeaning. I, I don't mean it like that. It's more just that, you know, like, it's... It, it, it just, it feels like a very underground type of thing. Uh, you know, similar to, I think, you know, I, like the hardcore punk that preceded it. You know, just all these DIYers, you know, just making zines and just touring around in like a crappy little van. <laughs> yeah. And, so. and plus, it's a very odd, um, like, I don't... I kind of had a feeling it was just because I thought the art was kind of striking, but like I don't know if it's super. Like when you look at like punk rock of the eighties and whatnot, I don't know if that would be something that people would would look for. Like I don't know if like mm. punks of the day would look at it and be like, "Oh, that's a really really cool." Uh, um, punks all over the map. It's yeah. so it it's odd, but yeah, I I get what you mean. Uh, no, that that that's really cool, dude. So it, it's it. It's always fun to have like a blind purchase like that that really worked out. Yeah, and I actually I bought a few other things that um, actually I have four blind purchases. Uh, one I I gotta listen to it more, but it's a I will say it's a cult classic, and I think I'll talk about it next week. But okay. it's a it's it's a very interesting interesting record. Okay. Um, so. Well, can't wait for that. But until then, we are signing off. So uh. Thanks for listening. Yeah, as always. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, if you're interested, uh, you know, if you want to hear more, just, you know, listen to us on... uh, iTunes pod, Apple Podcasts, Android Podcasts, anywhere you can get a podcast. Basically, uh, we are on all of it. Uh, if you follow us on Anchor, too, you know, whatever works for you. And uh, definitely be sure to follow us on Twitter. And if you ever have any suggestions, topics you want us to talk about, or questions, anything like that, uh, be sure to email us. Yeah, uh, we're at, at Sayshara Podcast on Twitter, and our email I think is Sayshara Podcast at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, as always, thanks for listening. Yeah, appreciate it a lot. Bye.